0: Welcome back to Plenary Session. This is Plenary Session Oncology Edition Podcast. We've been getting back to our roots these last few months. And if you like that, let me know. Send us a message at plenary Podcast at gmail.com. Today, we're talking about multiple myeloma. We're talking about a little Twitter discussion that took place about a week and a half ago. I've annotated it for you. I'm gonna walk you through the evidence behind it. There are a lot of really great points to talk about. You're gonna enjoy it. But it's not just about myeloma, no, no, no. If you're out there listening and you're a GI oncologist or you're a breast cancer oncologist, you want to listen too, because this is also a microcosm of expertise. This is also about what it means to be an expert oncologist in the modern world and how that so increasingly means making shit up. I mean, just making shit up is really what is the sine qua non of being an oncologist who is deemed an expert. We got to be very careful. When is it making it up? When is it the best available evidence? When is it a nuanced understanding of evidence? Where are the lines? And I think this discussion allows us to kind of get into these topics. So this is about multiple myeloma. This comes from Twitter. I've redacted, I think, you know, all maybe with one exception, because I'm gonna say something nice about this person, but I've redacted all of the speakers. It's not really about the individuals here. It's about the content of their arguments and why those arguments are lacking. And it's also sort of a commentary about if you were a patient watching this discussion is this what you would want to see on social media and how and how much can you talk about a quote-unquote individual case uh under the auspices of we're just discussing management strategies so i think maybe we'll come to that as well all right myeloma twitter just makes things up that's the title of this video just makes things up making things up is going to be a common and recurring feature of this video. So let's get into it. It all starts with a case. So many great conferences start with a case. So many great tweets start with a case. Stem cell transplant eligible, multiple myeloma patient, where the first line was DERA, DERatumumab VRD, quote unquote, quiet quit, quiet quit. Uh, By this, they mean that the response got stuck at PR. And so you switched to a second-line CD38 antibody, so like DARA or ISA, and kyprolis dexamethasone to deepen the response to VGPR, more than VGPR, not truly LEN refractory per se. What post-stem cell transplant maintenance would you use? And, you know, 49% of people, say, I guess, to be honest, what's the only acceptable answer to this question, which is let alone it's the only acceptable answer to this question. But <clears throat> the other answers are varied. CD38 antibody plus Q2-week PI, proteasome inhibitor, CD38 alone, example, Q4-week Dara. other, other comments. And what are the comments that come up? Why not transplant in PR and then do a few more cycles of consolidation afterwards? If he gets in CR that way, I'll probably do RV maintenance and monitor closely, but curious to see what others would do. Oh, I hear the church bells are tolling. Well, you know what they say, they toll for thee. All right, my vote is for anti-CD38 antibody and a different PI. Response plateau is not a good sign, likely a sign of functionality, a functionally high-risk disease. But here, my question for this person is different PI. We've already used Velcade and Kyprolis. What's the different PI? Ixazomib? That's the garbage PI. That's the PI that don't work. So what different PI are you gonna talk about? You talk about Velcade? You talking about Kyprolis? I don't know. Transplant with PR. As a field, we are uncomfortable changing therapy for MRD positive to negative, but we have no problem adapting to PR versus VGPR, yet the data tells us there's a far greater prognostic distance between the former than the latter. It's like we can see a horse is bigger than a dog and are willing to act on it, but are skeptical an amoeba is bigger than a virus because we need a thousand-person trial to prove the value of the microscope. Wow, so this person is getting to the weeds about about that switch and deepening before transplant. So, we're going to come back to all these comments, but first, we're going to get into the evidence for this case. There are multiple decisions, maybe at least four crossroads we come to in this case, and we're going to go back and revisit them all. So, let's start. The starting point, point of this case is, of course, this is a person who is stem cell transplant eligible, who they decide to initially treat with DARA VRD. That's an interesting choice because DARA VRD, as far as I can tell, is supported by very low levels of evidence. We have the Griffin study, not I shouldn't say Griffith, they should say Griffin on the screen. The Griffin study, and we have Cassiopeia, which is DARA VTD, it's not even VRD. Okay, let's talk about Griffin. Griffin. The primary endpoint of this randomized phase two study was the stringent CR rate. And they had an alpha that you could park a school bus in. It was a 0.1 alpha on this study. And they're looking at stringent CR rate at the end of post-stem cell transplant consolidation, systemically assessed with a validated computer algorithm, blah, 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 blah. The primary hypothesis was that the addition of daratumumab to VRD would improve the stringent CR rate by 15 percentage points from approximately 35% we're going to have an absolute 15 percentage point increase in stringent cr so this is why they're doing this study this is a very small phase 2 study looking at an endpoint that doesn't matter to patients which is the depth of response after consolidation it's a prognostic endpoint at best it's not a surrogate endpoint certainly not a predictive endpoint because you wouldn't do anything different based on the results it's a prognostic endpoint but that's what they're powering there. Underpowered, useless phase two study. Four, and lo and behold, they get a stringent CR rate of Dera VRD of forty two percent and a stringent CR rate of RVD in the control arm of this study of thirty one percent. As they said, they looked for a difference in fifteen, and they got a difference in. Wait a second. That doesn't. That's ten point four percent. That's a very interesting. They didn't even achieve their very low level primary endpoint in this pretty useless phase two study. Now, let me explain why I call it useless. And it is a useless study, and the people who do these kinds of studies should be ashamed of themselves. Why is it useless? We already use DERA in ladder lines of therapy, okay? We've been using that for quite some time. We use DERA VRD. We use DERA RD. We use DERA Dex. We have so many DERA salvage regimens, okay? And you're aspiring To move this up into newly diagnosed myeloma. And why do you aspire to do that? Well, the company's doing that because the market share is going to be tremendous. You're getting a lot more people and you're probably going to give them the drug for longer. So that means more money in your pocket. That's why the company really wants to do it. Now, why should a doctor or a patient want to do it? They should want to do it. If you live a longer or better life as a result of moving the dare up front versus getting it on the back end. Okay. Because that's what you're doing right now. A A trial can only change your practice if the control arm is your practice, okay? But here, you see, they have no ambition to even ask the relevant question. Dara vrd followed by whatever investigator choice salvage drug you want, and by the way, this is not going to cure anybody, so everyone is going to keep getting lines of therapy, versus VRD, which defeated RD in the cooperative group study, the, the SWOG study, sorry, the ECOG study. And then after VRD and you progress, you should get a DERA-containing regimen. And at a minimum, the primary endpoint should be a PFS-2 or a PFS-3, asking if moving that dare all the way up front is conferring a longer-term benefit on patients. Okay, let's get a little bit into this. I like to think of it like a marathon. If somebody's running a marathon and they're competing in the marathon and they really want to win the marathon, they're not just doing it for the bragging rights of, I finished the marathon, they want to actually win the thing. What is the one thing they use to decide who the winner is? <clears throat> Do they use the time you get to mile marker two? No, they don't use that. Do they use the number of blisters on your toes after the third mile, which is the stringent CR rate? No, they don't look at the number of blisters. They don't count the blisters on your toes at that mile marker. No, they use the overall time you finish the race. That's the deciding criteria. There might be one other metric that really matters to runners, and that's, how tired you are, how miserable it is across the journey of the race, okay? So overall survival matters to the runner, the time they finish the race, and the quality of the experience across the race, across the whole race. Because we all know when you run a marathon, you could have a miserable, people always say miles 10 through 12 were miserable, but then I found a second wind in 12 and 15, okay? So you got to measure quality of life across the whole thing all of the endpoints myeloma doctors are using. And here I give them credit. The median survival is quite long for the disease. It's seven to 10 years in their own disease. Why is it so long? Maybe some of it is the drugs. The drugs are active. Some drugs, not all drugs, but some drugs are good. Some of it is improvements in supportive care. And some of it is lead time bias because not only are they more astute about diagnosing it, not only is PET-CT a more sensitive imaging modality to diagnose it, but also they literally change the definition, okay? So they change the definition. So all of these things contribute to an improvement in median overall survival. It's not just the drugs alone. That's what they can't seem to understand. But in all of their studies, they are doing marathon studies. They never want to concern themselves with the time someone finishes the marathon. They never want to measure the quality of the experience across the study. They only want to measure things like the time you get to mile marker one, the time you get to mile marker two, and how many blisters are on your feet in mile marker two. That's really the extent of what they're measuring. And they pretend that this kind of measurement is giving us something useful about the experience of the race. And that's their fundamental fallacy. So here, they fall short in Griffin. It's a stupid study, as I pointed out, because it's not measuring any of the things a marathon person would care about. And here it's measuring the number of blisters on your toes at mile marker two. And they said we're gonna have 15% fewer blisters, 15% fewer blisters, and we didn't even achieve that, okay? We only had 10%, okay. They also report these really sort of of take-it-with-a-grain-of-salt PFS analyses. Here they show this is from conference there's no paper to date there's just presentation presentation that's another strategy they do they don't actually give you a paper of information they just trickle out the little bits of propaganda over a course of five years so you have no ability to really critically appraise it if you were the one percent of myeloma doctors who actually wanted to do that we're going to come to it some people actually here in this thread actually had some good things to say (coughs) what do i make of this what do i make of this pfs i make very little of it, you know? It's it's very small. It's underpowered. It's not the primary endpoint. The primary endpoint, technically, it failed, didn't it? It seems to me it failed. Now, of course, some purist is going to say that it actually achieved a 0.068p value in their own pre-specified nominal significance. It had a little bit—the power calculation was a little bit of a distortion as to what they really wanted, and I, 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 that's a longer discussion. But it did failed to meet what they had said they wanted. Okay, to this. You know, is this credible? I have no doubt i have no doubt that dara vrd is going to improve pfs1 i have no doubt that that's the case whether or not this study tells me that it does that i'd have some doubt i think it's incredibly statistically unreliable what are the myeloma doctors doing back to the marathon example they're going to the front of the race and they want to sell someone a very very expensive gel packet that we're already using in mile markers four and five and six And they're selling it to you at the beginning of the race at a huge price. And the control arm, as we're going to see in some of these studies, is never getting access to the gel packet. And they're only measuring the time until mile marker one. They're not measuring the time until the completion of the race. This is crazy stuff, okay? I mean, this is baffling that they would even think this is acceptable. This is what they're hanging their hat on. Now, what about Cassiopeia? I actually think Cassiopeia is stronger evidence these myeloma doctors don't cite it as much as they ought to, but this is DARA VTD versus VTD done in Europe, where for whatever Byzantine reason they could afford DARA, but they were still paying for Thal. I mean, okay, I mean, that's a really oddball of a choice. It's like putting caviar on uh, a, a hot dog you purchased from a street vendor, but you know, so be it. Okay, so be it. Here in Cassiopeia, we see an improvement in progression free survival. Again, that mile marker one, and there is some signal that they improve overall survival. But the crux of Cassiopeia is if you were assigned to the control arm and you progressed, you ought to have gotten what drug? Daratumumab. And what drug do you think you really had a piss-poor time of getting? And that was Daratumumab. Only 63 people in Cassiopeia, out of 215 people who were eligible or who actually received some subsequent therapy who had not received dara during the course of the double randomized study, only 63 out of 215 got DARA post-maintenance, okay? Only 29% of the people who had never gotten DARA got DARA post-maintenance. What percentage should that have been? It should have been close to 100%. Actually, it should be 110, 120% because some people are probably not getting therapy at all when they ought to get a therapy because this trial is being run globally and it's being run rather, as you can see, poorly, poorly, piss poorly. I mean, this is not a way to run a study. You're taking something you've already established has a role if you start taking it at mile marker four and five, and you're moving it to the beginning of the race. And in the control arm of the study, they don't get it at mile markers four or five. This is, this is simple logic 101 that this study is greed. It's the gel company trying to sell you some horrifically expensive product without proving it's actually necessary to take at that moment in juncture in time. They're not even measuring survival well here they are measuring the time across the whole race but the control arm is not getting it on the back end This is the figure we put together for a talk I gave to the UK Myeloma Research Group. And you should check out that talk because it talks about the deficiencies of multiple myeloma. And it basically shows in all of these instances, these were drugs that had already established a role in ladder lines of therapy. They're being moved up front, or moving up a line, when they're being moved upper line, what is the rate of control arm access to that invest that, that drug that's really standard of care in a ladder line? And it's never as good as it ought to be. <clears throat> Let's put all this together the the premise the first part of the premise is that this is somebody who's transplant eligible got dara vrd neither of these studies is capable of showing us whether adding dara to rvd is preferable to giving rvd and then dara containing regimens so already <clears> the <throat> myeloma experts are off to the wrong start already they have an ongoing study that is a phase 3 study of dara vrd versus vrd that study is likely looking at progression free survival as a primary endpoint they have a problem which is if they have equipoise for that study then they shouldn't be doing this off-label right now. This is crazy talk. They do not yet have data to justify this quadruple choice. So that's their first mistake. Stem cell transplant patient were first-line Dara RVD. Even before they quiet, quiet quit, they're already, they're already practicing beyond the evidence in a foolish and irresponsible manner, as I'll come to. <clears throat> then here's the kicker. The response got stuck at PR. <clears throat> By quite quick, what are they, what they actually mean is what they mean is that the patient, although dutifully complying with the regimen, could not achieve a deeper response with PR or so they claim. okay? They could have continued a few more cycles, and very likely with the law of statistics, some many people will actually deepen, but they decided to pull the trigger and switch to a second line CD30 antibody. I don't know if they're giving more Dara or ISO, either way, six of one, half dozen of the other. Kyprolis dexamethasone to deepen, which they call successfully deepen, to VGPR. Aaron Goodman writes, Why would we switch after PR? This is responding disease. Of course, it's a very wise question. Why would anybody switch in this situation? What evidence would you be hanging your hat on for such a switch? Here's the key point. No randomized control trial has ever shown a deepening response prior to transplant in a situation like this improves outcomes for anybody. Okay? So, no one has ever shown that you ought to switch at this moment. No one has ever proven a benefit. And of course, there are theoretical downsides. Exposure to more and more myeloma drugs is a downside. A downside is delaying transplant if you believe transplant has a benefit. There are many, many potential downsides, but most importantly, the burden is on the person who wants to do something non-standard to prove that doing it improves outcomes. It's not the burden on people who want to follow what has been done in all of the trials from the dawn of myeloma. Okay. It's not a burden on them. It's a burden on Dr. Moreau. You know, you the HG Wells story about the Island of Dr. Moreau, where you could go and practice whatever sort of mad science you want. Well, in America, Thanks to litigation, you can't practice like the Isle of Dr. Moreau. You have to have evidence, have to have something for what you're doing. And here, it's very clear they don't got any evidence. What they really have is this retrospective observational study. Somebody put this in one of the comments. (laughs) And this is such a, such a, I mean, I don't even know what to say other than the study is going to undermine the hypothesis that you ought to deepen before transplant. That's what the study's going to try to do. But what concerns me even more is that anyone would think of this study is actually adding to knowledge. I mean, we're all born with ignorance. I'll admit we have ignorance on this question, total ignorance. Insert this study and how much did your ignorance meter go down? You were at 99% ignorance before this study. You may have had a, a gut feeling, but you're mostly ignorant. This study, some people say, well, this is reducing the ignorance. It's the best available evidence. This study is so bad. It shouldn't change the meter at all. You see, that's a problem that people don't understand in science is that some studies are so bad, they ought not shift your Bayesian probability. The reason I cite Cassiopeia is it does shift your Bayesian probability in favor of the idea that they in the front line will in private PFS benefit. And it does do that. But this is of so poor methodological quality, it shouldn't change the probability at all. Let's look at it. This is a cohort of people with multiple myeloma between, you know, a broad year span and CIBMTR, who had an inadequate response to frontline therapy, they had only PR, okay? And then they say, they took those people, and they analyzed two cohorts, those who received additional salvage chemotherapy after non-response to frontline therapy, and proceeded to salvage, that's the salvage group, and those who had no additional salvage chemotherapy, but proceeded to transplant, the no salvage group. Now. If you did a randomized study of this question, you would take people in this bucket and you'd randomize them to intention to treat, take them to transplant, and maybe 90-some percent would get to transplant. And in the other arm, you'd randomize them to chemotherapy or further myeloma therapy like your ISA-KD and then the attempt to take them to transplant. Now, what if somebody in the control arm while they're getting ISA-KD died? Well, their outcomes would be included in the analysis. What if somebody even before they got to transplant and the control arm or the intervention arm died, well, their outcomes are included. But what about this study? This study, no. Until you experienced that day zero stem cell infusion, you had what? You had guarantee time. Yes, that time was guaranteed to you. Because to be in this cohort, salvage or non-salvage, you had to, by definition, live long enough until those stem cells trickled into your arm, okay? And that time from when you fail to achieve the response that people want and the doctor started thinking, should I deepen or not? Until the time the stem cells dribbled in your arm is guaranteed. It is both a selection bias, it's creating two different cohorts, and it is also not the same because the group that's going immediately to transplant, they have only one hurdle guaranteed, the time to transplant. But the group that gets salvaged and then transplant, they have two hurdles with guarantee time, both of those steps so it is an imbalance a deep imbalance in guarantee time they actually smell that they're on that they're stepping in this they don't correct for it correctly statistically but guarantee time is Such a problem in this study that they should throw out their, their results. This is such a useless study and anyone who thought about it for two seconds would realize you cannot do this analysis post hoc. If you're conditioning on receipt of transplant, you're conditioning on a variable that happens way after the moment you started to ponder the decision. And that's already inserting guarantee time. And this is where I find proceed to transplant, no transplant. and here are the results. OS is a wash, a wash that it appears that trying to deepen the response didn't improve survival. No, 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 that's not what it says. It says that among people who made it to transplant, it didn't really matter how you got to transplant, okay? That's what it's really showing you. A mistake from this graph is to conclude, what some are concluding, that this study fails to support the value of salvage therapy because the truth is, it's totally useless. One arm could have a much higher death rate. The tra- and, and, and to be honest, if I were to guess, my guess is that salvage has a much, much higher death rate. My guess is it's not just a neutral intervention, failed to improve outcomes. My guess is it's probably killing people through delay because it has way more guarantee time in which people could die. And if you had some way to see that in intention treat fashion, but it could be the other way around too, you know, that's the shitty, I mean, that's the trouble with observational studies is that they're so unreliable. It could cut even the other way. And so this doesn't change your calculus one bit at all. The author shouldn't have really even done it because when you start to, I mean, there is a such thing as doing such low quality science, you're better off with no science at all. There really is such a thing. And, and this is that thing. This is that thing. This is that thing. <clears throat> so here we are myeloma patients being mismanaged left right and center they're getting dara vrd they have no support for that they have an ongoing study that they're subverting they're subverting their own study by giving this off protocol and then you switch them to something based on a surrogate endpoint in a absolutely foolish manner on your island of dr moreau uh and then the question is what stem cell transplant maintenance would you use but there's a question before that which is why the hell did you even take them to transplant and i won't belabor this point but i think determination has really killed you all in transplant. Okay. Determination is showing that in mile marker seven to eight, we're going to take somebody or actually maybe let's make it this way. Mile markers, um, two to three, we're going to take somebody. And we're going to give them a Turkish massage. We're really going to pound on them. We're going to really give them, you know. uh, Or you could, in 20% of people, get that in mile markers between 7 and 8 instead. And there's no difference in the time until you finish the race. Okay, that's the first point. The next point about determination is there's no difference in quality of life. There's a decrement when you're getting pounded during the transplant When you're getting that risk, and there's no commensurate benefit thereafter, and the authors, uh, who are the people who like determination as if it supports transplant, they say that well, the PFS benefit is huge. If that PFS benefit was of such import that it actually translated into the lives of myeloma patients, that health-related quality of life Kaplan-Meyer, that health-related quality of life curve would separate in the time point post-transplant because the PFS benefit is a whopper. But PFS also includes the asymptomatic rise of an M protein in a blood, which people really don't feel and doesn't impair impair how they function. And there are many other things they could do thereafter. And so you don't see that health-related quality of life benefit on the back end. So I think even to take them to transplant is crazy. Transplant should be on its... It should be on... It should be on practically extinct. It should be practically extinct, okay? And if it didn't reimburse... In fact, we could prove this. Medicare could slash the reimbursement 25%. In fact, I'll write them a letter and I'm you know, maybe we'll maybe we'll publish an article that says that. Medicare should slash the reimbursement 25% and then let nature take its course. If you're all such true believers, I'm sure you'll be true believers if we paid you 25% less. We'll see the impact of markets. The markets will show you that this is an incredibly preference sensitive decision. But not for the patient, for the hospital center. And that if I turn down the money, you're going to turn down the transplant. And so the person probably shouldn't have gotten transplanted. Okay. You can go watch my video on determination if you disagree. Why, you know, go, watch, go listen to another podcast where you get bored to death. You could do that too. You're free to do that. I've done that so many times and I can't tolerate the audio quality and I can't tolerate the lack of actually saying things that are interesting. Okay. What post stem cell transplant maintenance would you use? 49% have the only acceptable answer, the answer for which there's randomized data. Only one of these strategies has randomized control trial data. That's LEN. It has multiple randomized control trials and pooled analysis. It improves the time you finish the entire marathon, okay? It's the only acceptable strategy. We also have Ixazomib. (coughs) Ixazomib, and in MM3. This was in Unethical trial, yeah, why was it unethical? Because the control arm was not allowed to get Revlimid maintenance, which had already proven a benefit, certainly for PFS, it was already a standard of care therapy, and in meta-analysis very early on in this study, it had proven an overall survival benefit. But you weren't allowed to get it, and they didn't make a protocol amendment to give it to you, and they ran tourmaline MM3, an unethical, unethical, deeply unethical and problematic study. And here they did have a PFS benefit, but as Raj Chakraborty points out very cleverly, is that from months 21 onward, 21, 24, 27, 30, there is a huge imbalance in censoring. Okay. And there's way more tick marks and there's way more censoring. And what does censoring do? It means all Kaplan-Meier plots have censoring. It is a method of maximum information harvest and censoring is a way to eliminate somebody because you have no further information about that person. Okay. Now, the idea of kaplan Meyer plot is that the people being censored are no healthier, wealthier, or wise than those in whom you have data. And thus, inferring what would have happened to those people from the people you do have is a sound inference. But when you start to have imbalances in censoring and a lot of censoring, one wonders if that fundamental assumption is true, that the censoring is uninformative, has nothing to do with the estimate. You start to worry that the people being censored are different. Maybe they're more likely to be sick or frail or vulnerable, more likely to experience the event of interest. And so extrapolating from those who you have to those who you don't have becomes a fickle proposition. And that's what he's pointing out here. And not only this, but tourmaline, it doesn't even have an overall survival benefit. It has overlapping overall survival curves. It's as crappy as you get. You ran an unethical control arm, and you couldn't even beat it. So actually you hurt both arms of the study. The placebo arm was hurt because they should have been getting LEN, and the intervention arm was hurt because they should have been getting LEN. They would have at least a survival benefit. Okay. If you really want to understand censoring, I recommend the paper by Kate Rose and myself and Emerson Chen called Censored Patients and Kaplan-Meier Plots of Cancer Drugs and Empirical Analysis of Data Sharing. We look across all of the Lancet papers where they report censored values by time interval, and we have some ideas on how you should think about censoring more broadly. <clears throat> there is an ongoing randomized controlled trial, this SWOG study. It's len plus or minus DERA. This is the only thing that, uh, you know, would be reasonable to enroll this patient on. The primary endpoint of this study is, guess what? Overall survival. Maybe they made a Maybe there was some glitch in their in their system that they've actually used overall survival as a primary endpoint. But what's gonna be key is the control arm when they progress. They should get access to DARA, okay? But since this is a US SWOG study, I hope it's high. But since it's a US SWOG study, I fear they're not going to report it. They're not gonna report it because they do such a bad job with data collection post after the fact. Such a bad job. They do such a good job with negotiating the drugs from the sponsor in their independent study. They do such a bad job with collecting the data after the protocol has ended. That's, I think, kind of shocking. Okay, now let's talk about some of the quotes. What were the myeloma doctors saying? <laughs> this is what, one of the quotes. Uh, I would recommend VRD or KR maintenance. Lots of CD38 upfront. If the belief was there was a poor, indu- poor response to induction, then a doublet maintenance strategy for functional high-risk disease. Crazy. No randomized data to support this. Super costly drugs. If you're giving somebody VRD for the rest of their lives, why are you even calling it maintenance? It's like perpetual induction. It's like being stuck in Groundhog Day. The toxicity is going to add up. What's going to happen to their neuropathy? And you have no no data. You make them live longer or live better. You're adding an indefinite therapy, no data. And KR, what are you gonna do if they start to have cardiac complications? You don't even know what you're doing is safe. Okay, indefinite KR. This is your idea? Crazy, absolutely crazy absolutely crazy. Why not transplant in PR? Do a few more cycles of consolidation afterwards. I'll tell you why. That's never been validated as a strategy. You're free to design and conduct a randomized control trial where you take those people and you randomize them to give more therapy. It could be a three-arm randomized study. This idea of taking them to salvage, the idea of taking them right to transplant, and the idea of taking them to transplant and then doing this consolidation. I strongly suspect you're going to get no difference in OS and you're going to get just health-related quality of life decrements while you're doing all your stupid mad science, okay? You can't just invent ideas. This is why, why even do the trials then? I mean, if you're willing to do these kinds of things, give us VRD, just get KR, just, you know, give them some consolidation after auto, then why do we even have a trial system at all? We can all just make up our things willy-nilly anyway. So what do we do the trials for? You can't have it both ways. The trials are there because it's supposed to be light in the darkness. And here you're just adding more darkness, okay? My vote is for anti-CD38 and a different PI. What different, what different PI? The patient's gotten Velcade and Kyprolis. You're gonna give them IXA? IXA don't work. Anti-CD38 antibody, it's, there's an ongoing study. Response plateau is not a good sign. <clears throat> I don't, I mean, I honestly don't know what, what is, what are we just making making things up? Why not just give him VAD or uh, DCEP and give him another auto? I mean, where the, I mean, who, who decides? Give him Ticlistamab, give him uh give him a Siltacel. We're, if we can just make shit up, just make shit up. We're just all making shit up. This is not expertise. This is stupidity and ignorance of history. Because in the history of medicine, when doctors just started making shit up, they mostly got it wrong because it's more ways to be wrong than to be right. That's the truth about biology. Here's a better answer. It's almost perfect. It's almost perfect. If the intent is to go to upfront transplant, I'd be happy with PR a better pre-transplant and let MEL200 do the rest of the job. And I think that's what the trials would support. <clears throat> of course, this is rare in an era of DERA-VRD, induction. And both of those inductions, I think, are t- absolutely unproven. Unless high genetics, I would do single agent LEN maintenance. That's right, except for the part unless high genetics, because they don't have a randomized trial just in high genetics, showing a survival benefit to anything beyond LEN. But single agent LEN I like, and I think this person is right about the PR point. This is a pretty good point. Agree. The bar should be really high for maintenance therapy, i.e. overall survival, in my opinion. It is troubling to see so many maintenance RCTs with PFS as the endpoint. Glad that SWOG-1803 has OS. Very good point. Very good point. So there are good comments there, too transplant with PR as a field where uncomfortable changing therapy for MRD versus MRD negative, and this is if a horse is bigger than a dog, you're willing to act, but an amoeba bigger than a virus. In both cases, you should have data, okay? You should have data, the deepening. In fact, that retrospective study with so much guarantee time in it, you can, with all that guarantee time, showed absolutely no difference among those people who made it to transplant, however they got there. Uh, Very likely is a clue that dilly-dallying, it's killing people, probably a lot, is my guess. But if it was the other way, I, I could be that could go the other way, too. So you need to do studies before you start making analogies of dogs and cats and horses. And this is a point that I really like. Is there anything that most myeloma experts agree on? Maybe other than Revlimid maintenance and standard risk? I see so much disagreement. I take care of all hemolignancy fields, and this is most evident in dyspro, d- uh, dysproteinemia as a field. Someone should make a list where there's two out of three agreement. <clears throat> it's a very wise point. And it's true because they make more things up. You see, they don't, they're not as good at evidence-based medicine as other fields. CLL is not treating people with, who would otherwise not be treated with precursor CLL, MBL, with ibrutinib. But if the myeloma docs were in CLL, they would be because they're doing it with smoldering. The same data is interpreted differently in different fields with different cultural norms. This field has a certain cultural norm. The cultural norm is one, they have a poor understanding of evidence-based medicine. Two, they have a poor understanding of medical history wherein doctors make things up, they're more likely to be wrong. Three, they're heavily, heavily influenced by the pharmaceutical industry. Their payments are through the roof and so many of them aspire to take those payments. Four, the cost of the drugs per year is catastrophically higher. When you put four of these expensive drugs together and give it for the rest of your life, the total healthcare costs are catastrophic. More money is being inserted into this field because more money comes out of the field, okay? And this kind of culture, once it has a sort of, it brews, it, 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 bruises, it, it keep, perpetuates itself, okay? They never want to, in, or seldom want to invite any outside criticism of their field. They're Uh, get people to toe the line by any time somebody speaks out, they have somebody's somebody's boss talks to them and tells them to stop tweeting critically about myeloma drugs. So, of course, there's going to be a lot of disagreement when you tell doctors one or two or three or four or five or six or seven years out of fellowship, you can just make things up. You know, there's going to be a lot of disagreement as people make things up, okay? That's really what it is. This one blew me away. Since melphalan appears to create an evolutionary bottleneck, bit also, inc- but also increase mutational burden at relapse. I'd like to have a lower burden of disease going into transplant if it doesn't mean a lot more toxicity. This person read like a Nature paper and is just making shit up. Okay, they just read a Nature paper that says melphalan. You know, it's a bottleneck, but then there's more mutations on the back end. So I would definitely want it to be lower to prevent mutations in the few You're just totally making shit up. You need to do randomized studies that shows your strategy improves survival, not basic physiology. You know, model story. It's really storytelling. This is like what Rudyard Kipling. This is the Rudyard Kipling of our day, okay, just making up stories about biology uh, from a, some little paper you read in some biology journal. I mean, absolutely crazy. This person is correct. Not a myeloma person, but no evidence that deepening past PR is helpful before auto. Correct. Retrospective data suggests it doesn't matter. Correct, although that's such bad data that it shouldn't really change you that much. Plus, virtually all of the major RCTs use a schema of four to six cycles, induction, then auto no matter what. So I'm with option one. Not in myeloma, but knows a lot more than a lot of experts, huh? So back to the question. The answer is, of course, let alone. The answer, of course, is, I mean, Dara VRD, no. Should have been VRD. There are ongoing studies. They're not really exactly asking the right question. Got stuck at PR switch. Terrible, terrible uh, to, to switch them. No data. Uh, uh, in fact, the, this horrible study has no basis, no validity, but there's no data. That's the big point. Uh, taking them to transplant. Determination should have undermined your faith in that, and post and transplant maintenance, giving all those stupid drugs, absolutely unproven. So really, I, I mean, I I don't know what to say. Um, it's an interesting it's an interesting little bit of history here, history before our eyes. I mean, I think you see a field that is in the hypothesis generating phase. They don't know how to separate hypotheses from evidence and algorithms and treatment strategies. They're blurring the two lines. Uh, They have no respect for evidence-based medicine in any way I can see. Their trials are deeply, often uninformative. Uh, We're going to test four drugs versus one drugs, and PFS is the primary endpoint. I mean, or four versus three, and PFS is the primary endpoint. Or, in this case, four versus three, and the primary endpoint is stringent CR, and we're hoping for 15% increase in stringent CR. Oh, shoot, we didn't get it, but we went ahead and changed the standard of care anyway on the basis of that phase two. (laughs) It's absolutely crazy. And they're telling horse analogies, and they're telling evolutionary bottleneck analysis, stories and you know it's like the lowest level i don't know where to correct the whole spectrum i mean i think the first thing that'd be correct, correct is if you banned personal financial payments then that's one thing that will cut a huge tie and so a lot of these very vocal people when deprived of that sort of um incentive and stimulus, they're going to start to be a little bit more reserved and quiet. Then I think you need to have better firewalls so that SWOG or ECOG can actually run independent studies, not like, you know, the study that the company greenlit, you know? And then the people on who make those study decisions should be non-conflicted. I think that would help. I think education and evidence-based medicine would help. The fact that, you know, we spend more time teaching about evolutionary bottlenecks than the importance and need for randomization, Uh, that's a problem. and then I think it is kind of weird to me to see all this on social media, because if I was this person undergoing a series of fun, really experimental, experimental decisions that lack randomized evidence, uh, and then I were to see how somebody points out all these errors, I would feel the urge. To litigate the physician, because it really—I mean—I think—and and and—and and, and it wouldn't be out of the question. I think that this is kind of problematic when we let doctors decide that they are self-proclaimed experts. Um, often very early in their career. They're, you know, first year, if it can be a first year faculty member and a self-proclaimed expert, and you can just make shit up with like $600,000 a year of drugs and get angry, of course, when insurers don't wanna pay for it, which by the way, they do wanna pay for it in the long haul. They just don't wanna pay for it year to year. And that's a big headache and they should all end their stupid policies as well. But you're getting angry about it when you're playing mad scientist. Uh, you know, it's really, I don't know what to think here. This is a big problem. Telling these stories on social media is a problem, but practicing medicine in this way is a big problem. And it cuts deeper than myeloma. It affects a lot of fields in oncology. Uh, It's why I think many people don't go into oncology because they feel it's a little bit crooked. And I think it is crooked in the sense if you're always erring on the side of adding more bullshit drugs with no evidence and you're taking all this money simultaneously and you may not feel like that's crooked, but it sure as hell looks that way from the outside. All right, those are my thoughts. Myeloma Twitter just makes things up. It's a commentary about expertise. Most experts actually think in oncology are not experts in any way, shape, or form. If you randomized people, who seek expertise and expert consultation versus just seeking good, solid oncology in the community. I, I don't think you'll ever get an OS benefit out of that. All of the best comments were people prefacing by saying, I take care of other malignancies. I'm not just a myeloma doctor, but... And then they say the, the correct thing. Okay, the evidence-based thing. Myeloma's in a bubble. You need to pop your little bubble. Um, otherwise, it's gonna be popped for you. You have proven, I think, over and over again, that you cannot self-regulate your field. Uh, What do you think you're going to do when you keep driving up healthcare costs, making shit up? Somebody's going to regulate it for you, and they're going to regulate it in a way that unfortunately it will be like a sword and not a scalpel. You could regulate it with a scalpel by stopping doing this kind of crazy stuff, but they're going to come in with a sword and chop it up to bits because they can't be spending $1.2 million. A society can't spend that and actually oughtn't spend that on somebody with cancer because the things we're not spending it on. Childhood nutrition and pregnant women and blood pressure control. And that's where we ought to spend it on. Any sensible society would spend it in a way that makes more people's lives better. Because with a veil of ignorance, we don't know who we will be in this life. Okay, read some John Rawls. Okay, on that positive note, myeloma Twitter just makes things up. It's sad to see. We'll be back with more plenary session. I've got some discussions of um, triangle trial. Um, I have some slides ready about that. There's something else I was working on the other day thinking through what to talk about. But these commentaries about, um, you know, all this, I think it illustrates a lot of points that I think are really important. So until next time, if you you like this show, leave a comment on the iTunes store. Don't just like it. Just leave a comment because I want to see what you have to say. Okay, until next time.